In 2001, Charlotte Pfeiffer was director of Indiana University South Bend's Office of Campus Diversity, as well as a South Bend Common Council representative. That year, she led the fifth in a series of events called Conversations on Race. The keynote speaker was Representative John Lewis. John Lewis passed away last Friday after a lifetime of fighting for justice. To honor his life, we present the speech he delivered here at IU South Bend in 2001. Hope you enjoy.
I wanted to attend a little college about 10 miles from my home called Troy State College. It is now known as Troy State University. It didn't admit black students. I submitted my application, had my high school transcript sent to the school. I never read a word from the college. I wrote a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I didn't tell my mother, my father, any of my sisters or brothers that I was writing a letter to Dr. King. I wrote a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. and told him I wanted to attend Troy State College. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote me back and sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, I had applied to attend a little college in Nashville, Tennessee. I will never forget it as long as I live. It was accepted. My father told me he was going to drive me to the Greyhound bus station. My uncle mine gave me a hundred dollar bill more money than I ever had. He also gave me a footlocker. I put everything that I own, my clothing, a few books in that footlocker, everything that I own except those chickens that I used to preach to, and went off to Nashville <laughs> to study. Martin Luther King Jr. got back in church and suggested when I was home for spring break to come to see him. In March of 1958, by this time I'm 18 years old, on a Saturday morning, my father drove me to the Greyhound bus station. I boarded the bus, traveled the 50 miles from Troy to Montgomery, arrived at the Greyhound bus station. I'd never seen a lawyer before, black or white. And a young lawyer, young black man by the name of Fred Gray, who was a lawyer for Rosa Parks. Dr. King and the Montgomery Movement met at the Greyhound bus station and drove me to the First Baptist Church in downtown Montgomery, passed by the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, a colleague of Dr. King, and ushered me into the office of the church. As I walked through the door of the church, I saw Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy standing behind a desk. And Dr. King said, John Lewis, are you John Lewis? Are you the boy from Troy? And I spoke up and said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. I gave my whole name. I didn't want there to be any mistake that I was the right person. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. It was the beginning of my involvement in the Civil Rights Movement. We had a wonderful discussion about my going to Troy State. And Dr. King told me if I pursued the idea of what could happen to me, uh, to my family. I continued to study in Nashville, Tennessee. And by studying in Nashville, Tennessee, students from Vanderbilt, Peabody, Scarlet College, Fish University, American Baptist Theological Seminary, Tennessee State, Ohio Medical College, all of us came together and started studying the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. And then we started sitting in at segregated lunch counters and restaurants in downtown Nashville. And while sitting in, 
spring of 1960. You sit in there in a waterman, peaceful, non-violent fashion. And someone would come up and put a lighted cigarette out in our hair. Or down our backs. Pour hot water on us. Hot coffee, hot chocolate. But we didn't strike back. Because we had been taught the way of nonviolence, the way of love. Because our struggle, we had been taught, was not a struggle against people, not against our fellow human beings, not against our fellow citizens, but a struggle against customs, tradition, bad laws. We were out to redeem the very soul of Nashville as Dr. King was said, to redeem the very soul of America. Our goal was to build a beloved community, an open society, an all-inclusive society, where we could forget about race and color and see people as people, as human beings. And during those years, many of us grew to accept nonviolence, not simply as a technique or as a tactic, but as a way of life, as a way of living. When you accept nonviolent, simply as a technique or as a tactic, it becomes like a faucet. You can turn it on and you can turn it off. But when you accept nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living, you accept means and ends are inseparable. If we want to create the beloved community, the good society, the open society, if that is our goal, if that is our end, then the way we struggle must be one of love. Come to the conclusion that love is a better way. It is a more excellent way. It is the good way. Growing up in the rural South, I was told over and over again by my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, don't get in trouble. There's a student in Nashville, <laughs> studying nonviolence, sitting in, going on the freedom rides. I got in trouble. It was good trouble. It was necessary trouble. Sometimes in a movement, you have to do what I call get in the way. Just get in the way. You have to have that faith, that belief, that somehow, in some way, you must just get in the way to bring about change. A group of us were sitting in on February 27, 1960, at downtown Lynch County in Nashville. We had been beaten. People were spit on us. And then the local officials came in and they placed us all under arrest. I was arrested for the first time. In the moment that I was arrested, I felt liberated. I felt free. So you beat me, you spit on me, you arrest me. What else can you do? The movement spread all across the South like wildfire. 
And Martin Luther King Jr. was so moved and so pleased to see hundreds and thousands of students, young people, believing in the philosophy of nonviolence, taking the movement, not just on the college campuses, but going on the Freedom Line, taking the movement into the heart of Mississippi, the Delta, to the Black Belt of Alabama, Southwest Georgia, and other parts of the South. But all across the South, during that period, others were being arrested, beaten, and chair. I said earlier today that President Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and later President Johnson responded to our pride, to our suffering, to our pain. I saw the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration during those years, as sympathetic referees in the struggle for civil rights, in the struggle for social change. Remember the last time I saw President Kennedy alive, on August 28, 1963, after the march on Washington. He greeted us, said he enjoyed the speeches. It was a wonderful occasion. Wish all of us well, told us to go out and work to get the Civil Rights Act passed. But a few short days after the march on Washington, the terrible bombing of the 16th Street Church in Birmingham, September 15, 1963 where four little girls were killed. It was a dark hour. But we didn't give up. In my March on Washington speech, I had said, one person, or one man, one vote. One man, one vote is the African cry. It is ours, too. It must be ours. And we turned our attention to getting the right to vote. We went into Selma. Only 2.1% of black people of voting age were registered to vote. We anticipated our efforts in Mississippi, a state that had a black voting age population of more than 450,000, and only about 16,000 blacks were registered to vote. There were one county in Alabama, Lowndes County, between Selma and Montgomery, the county was more than 80% African American, but there was not a single registered African American voter in the county. Individuals had to pass a so-called literacy test, be able to interpret that section of the United States Constitution, Constitution of the State of Alabama, Mississippi, or Georgia. There were black lawyers, black doctors, black high school teachers, college professors, and told they could not read or write well enough. On one occasion, there was a black man who had a PhD degree in philosophical theology and he flunked the so-called literacy test. On another occasion, a man was asked to give the number of bubbles in a bar of soap. How many smart students at any university can give the number of bubbles in a bar of soap? That whole effort came to a head in 1964, when my old organization, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, organized something called the Mississippi Summer Project. And we recruited more than a thousand students 
teachers, lawyers, doctors, ministers, priests, rabbis, nuns, and others that come to Mississippi and work that summer. To work in the freedom schools, in community centers, to pay people to pass the so-called literacy test. The summer night of June 21st, 1964, three young men that I knew, Andy Goodman, Mika Schroeder, white, James Shannon, black, went out to investigate the burning of a black church. These three young men were arrested, taken to jail by the sheriff. Later that same Sunday night, they were taken from jail by the sheriff and his deputy, turned over to the Klan, where they were beaten, shot, and killed. These three young men didn't die in Vietnam. They didn't die in the Middle East. They didn't die in Eastern Europe. They didn't die in Africa. They didn't die in Central or South America. They died right here in our own country for the right of all of our citizens to become participants in the democratic process. We didn't give up. We didn't get lost in the sea of despair. We didn't become bitter. We continued to work. On July 2nd, 1964, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He won a landslide election in November 1964. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Peace Prize in December 1964. Come back to America, hold a meeting with President Johnson at the White House, and said, Mr. President, we need a strong voting rights act. President Johnson tell Dr. King in so many words, we don't have the votes in the Congress to get a voting rights act passed. We just signed the Civil Rights Act. Martin Luther King Jr. make it back to Atlanta, meet with people in his own organization, the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, meet with those of us in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he said we were right that act. He made a decision to join us in Selma, Alabama but we have been involved since 1962. You heard me say earlier in Selma, Alabama, the heart of the black belt, only 2.1% of blacks of voting age were registered to vote. In Selma, in Dallas County, the only place that you could even attempt to register to vote was at the county courthouse. The only attempt to register to vote on the first and third Mondays of each month. We had a sheriff there, was a very big man, mean man. He wore a gun on one side, a nightstick on the other side, and he carried an electric cab product in his hand, and he didn't use it on count. He wore a button on his left lapel that said never. Never to voter registration, never to integration. When it was my day to lead a group of elderly black men and women to the courthouse, just to get inside the door, up the steps, get a copy of the test, Sheriff Clark met me at the top of the steps. And he said to me, John Lewis, you're not a sign agitator. 
in the lowest form of humanity. At that time, I had all of my hair, and I was a few pounds lighter. <laughs> I looked Sheriff Rock straight in the eye, and I said, Sheriff, I may be an agitator, but I'm not an outsider. I grew up only 90 miles from here, and we're going to stay here until these people out to register to vote. And he said, you're under arrest. And he took me to jail, along with a few other people. It was okay. I've been arrested and gone to jail a few times before, so it was okay. A few days later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Abinaz, and others came to Selma. We mobilized the city of Selma, Dallas County, the surrounding communities. We filled the city jail, the county jail. Several hundred people got arrested. And then the night of February the 19th, 1965, in a little town called Marion, Alabama, about 35 miles from Selma, the home county, Perry County, where Marion, Alabama is the county seat, the home county of Mrs. Martin Luther King Jr., Mrs. Rapper Abernathy, and the late Mrs. Andrew Young, Jean Young, all from the same place. Young man by the name of Jimmy Lee Jackson was involved in a march for the right to vote. A confrontation occurred. Try to protect his elderly grandfather. He was shot in the stomach by a state trooper. And a few days later, he died at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Selma. Because of what happened to him, we made a decision, the movement did, that we were march from Selma to Montgomery to dramatize to the nation and to the world that we wanted the right register to vote, the right of all of our citizens to participate in the democratic process. We set the date on March 7th that we will march, Sunday, March 7th. On Saturday, March 6th, Governor Wallace, the governor of the state of Alabama, issued a statement saying the march will not be allowed. The same day, Sheriff Clark requested that all white men over the age of 21 to come down to the courthouse to be deputized, to become part of his posse to stop the march. We attended the church services at Brown Chapel, Amy Church, a little church in downtown Selma that Sunday morning. After the services, about 600 of us, primarily elderly black men and women and a few young people and a few young children, gathered out on a playground, conducted a nonviolent workshop. We had a prayer. We lined up in twos to walk in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion from Selma to Montgomery. I was wearing a backpack before it became fashionable to wear backpacks. And in this backpack, I had two books, an apple, an orange, toothbrush, and toothpaste. I thought we were going to be arrested, that we were going to jail. So I wanted to have something to read, something to eat. And since I was going to be in jail in close quarters with my friends, colleagues, and neighbors, I wanted to be able to drink my tea. I was walking beside a young man by the name of Jose Williams on the staff of Dr. King. No one said a word. 
to get to the edge of the bridge crossing the Alabama River, the Independence Bridge. You see all of this water down below in the Alabama River. Jose Williams says to me, John, can you swim? And I said, no. I said, Jose, can you swim? And he said, no. I said, well, there's too much water down there. We're not going to jump. We're not going back. We went forward. And we continue to walk. No one saying a word. We come to the apex of the bridge. And we look down below. We saw a sea of blue. Alabama State Troopers. Some members of Sheriff Clark Posse, the deputies, men on horseback. We continue to walk. We come within here distance of the state troopers. A man identified himself and said, I'm Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers. This is an unlawful march, but not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your church. In less than a minute and a half, Major John Cloud said, Troopers advance. You saw these men putting on that gas mask. They came toward us, beating us with knife sticks and bull whips, trampling us with horses, releasing the tear gas, but hit in the head by a state trooper with a knife stick. Had a concussion at the bridge. I thought I was going to die. To this day, I don't know how I made it back across the bridge, through the streets of Selma, back to this little church, Brown Chapel, the Amy Church. But I do recall being back at the church that Sunday afternoon. The church is not full to capacity. More than 2,000 people on the outside trying to get in to protest what had happened on the bridge. And someone asked me to say something to the audience, and I stood up and said, I don't understand it. I pray that Johnson can send troops to Vietnam. And I sent troops to Selma to protect people who only desires to register to vote. The next thing I knew, I had been admitted to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Selma. The following Monday morning, Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Abernathy, came by to visit. Dr. King had made it in from Atlanta. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said to me, John, don't worry. We'll make it from Selma to Montgomery. The Voting Rights Act will be passed. He issued a call, he issued an appeal for religious leaders to come to Selma. <coughs> Following Tuesday, more than a thousand ministers, priests, rabbis, and nuns responded to the plea of Dr. King and came to Selma and marched across the bridge, marched to the point where we have been beaten two days early, said a prayer returned to the church. That evening, one of the ministers, along with several others, went out to get something to eat. They were attacked by the Klan. One was so severely beaten, two or three days later, he died at a local hospital in Birmingham. President Johnson invited Governor Wallace to come to Washington to try to get assurance from him that he would protect us if he did decided to march on from Selma to Montgomery. And President Johnson did not get assurance from Governor Wallace as the federal court issued an order allowing us to march to 50 miles. President Johnson made the decision to call out the military and federalize the Alabama National Guard. 
But he went on television and spoke to a joint session of the Congress on March 15, 1965, and perhaps made one of the most moving speeches on the whole question of voting rights, of civil rights, that any American president had made in modern time. Lyndon Johnson started that speech off that night by saying, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and for the destiny of democracy. He went on to say, at time, history, and fate, meet in a single place, and man unending search for freedom. So it was, more than a century ago, in Lexington and in Congress. So it was, at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. He condemned the violence in Selma, introduced the Voting Rights Act. And in that speech, he said over and over again, and we shall overcome. And we shall overcome. But sitting next to Martin Luther King Jr., the home of a local family there in Selma, as we watch and listen to President Johnson, tears came down his face. He cried, and we all cried a little. He said again, we'll make it. The voting rights act will be passed. And the Congress passed the voting rights act. And it was signed into law on August 6, 1965. And I said to you today, as you have a conversation on race, because of the involvement of hundreds and thousands and millions of our citizens, because of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and the effort of so many countless individuals, we live in a different country. We live in a better country. We are in the process of laying down the burden of race. I don't care what people tell you. And I know there are people, no doubt, in the South End. There are people all across the state, all across our nation, I hear from time to time, saying, nothing change. I said, come and walk in my shoes. Things have changed. Those signs that I saw are gone. And they will not return. But we went back to Selma, Alabama for the 35th anniversary of the march from Selma to Montgomery. You must keep in mind, in 1965, 36 years ago, all of the law enforcement people were all white men. But when we went back there and walked across that bridge for the 35th anniversary last year, President of the United States walked across with us. There were women, African American, Asian American, and Hispanic. They didn't beat us, they stood and saluted us. And on the other side of the bridge, the governor of the state of Alabama reached out and shook my hand and said, Welcome home, John Lewis. We live in a different country. It is important for us to talk about race, to engage in a dialogue, not speaking the question under the rug. We have come a distance. We've made a lot of progress, but we still have a distance to go to build a beloved community, to build an open society. It's someone, Tim, that told me when I was preaching to those chickens. If somebody told me when I was sitting in, going on a freedom ride, 
remember being arrested for a time in jail. Someone had told me when I was left lying unconscious at the Greyhound bus station in Montgomery in May of 1961. Someone had told me when I had a concussion at the bridge in 1965. That one day, I would be standing here at Indiana University, South Bend, as a member of Congress, rep representing all of the good people of Georgia, of the 5th District, black and white. I would say, you crazy? You're out of your mind, you don't know what you're talking about. So I said to all of us, and especially young people, you must never ever give up or give in or give out. Don't become bitter. Don't become hostile. Don't get lost in a sea of despair. We must keep your faith. We must keep our eyes on the prize. Our struggle build a beloved community, to build a good society. I struggle to lay down the burden of race, to lay down the burden of hate. It's a struggle of a lifetime. Every day I become more hopeful and more optimistic about the future. We should not fear the future. We should embrace it. I told some of you the story early, and I tell it again. Those of you who heard it, just I don't forget. When I was brought up outside of Troy, Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery, near an aunt, this aunt was named Sedevo, my aunt Sedevo. I grew up in a very large family, six brothers and three sisters. Holds of first cousins, almost a hundred on my mother's side alone. Had a sense of extended family. But we grew up there an aunt by the name of Seneva, and my aunt Seneva lived in what we call a shotgun house. She didn't have a green manicured lawn. She had a simple, plain, dirt yard. I know here at South Bend, here at this great university, all of these wonderful elected officials, wonderful teachers, professors, administrators, you're very smart, but you don't know what a shotgun house is. You've never seen one. Mom Anthony lived in a shotgun house. Sometime at night, you can look up through the ceiling, through the tin roof of this old shotgun house, and come to stall. When it rained, she would get a pail of what we call a bucket and catch the rainwater. From time to time, she would walk out into the woods and take branches from a dogwood tree and tie these branches together and make a broom, and she called it the brush broom. And she would sweep this dirt yard clean sometime two or three times a week. My aunt Geneva lived in a shotgun house. For the young people here, let me tell you what a shotgun house is in the nonviolent sense. In the nonviolent sense, a shotgun house, the old house with a tin roof, but you can bounce a ball through the front door and it will go straight out the back door. My destiny will live in a shotgun house. Uh, in the military sense, old house with a tin roof, but you can fire a gun through the front door and the bullet will go straight out the back door. 
But one Saturday afternoon, a group of my sisters and brothers and a few of my first cousins, about 12 or 15 of us young children, were planting my Geneva dirt yard. And an unbelievable storm came up. The wind started going, the thunder started rolling, the lightning started flashing, and the rain started beating on the timber for this old shotgun house. Martin became terrified. She started crying. She thought this old house was going to blow away. She got us all on the inside and told us to hold hands. Wind continued to blow. Thunder continued to roll. The lightning continued to flash. And we all started crying as little children. And from one corner of this old house appeared to be lifted from its foundation, Martin had us to walk to that corner to try to hold this house down with our little bodies. When the other corner up here to be lifted, had us to walk to that side to try to hold this house down with our little bodies. We were little children walking with the wind, but we never, ever left the house. The wind may blow, the thunder may roll, the lightning may flash, and the rain may beat on all the houses. Call it the house of Indiana University. Call it the house of something. Call it the American house, call it the world house, but we all live in the same house. We're one house. We're one people. We're one family. Just maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this great land in different ships. But we're all in the same boat now. It doesn't matter whether we're black or white or Hispanic or Asian American or Native American. We're one people. So I've said to you this afternoon, as we continue this journey, this dialogue, this discussion, this debate, this conversation on race, that we must stay with the house, that we must walk with the wind, let the very spirit of our democracy be our guide. Thank you very much. And so if I, my voice starts to quiver at this point, please forgive me. Uh, my name is Elonda Wilder-Hamilton. I'm the diversity coordinator here at IUSB. I work with Shadow Pfeiffer. But I have two questions for you. The first one is, you mentioned the Mississippi Project, project and I was fortunate enough to, have, to own a copy, and I recently finished reading the Mississippi Challenge. It was an excellent book. So would you mind just elaborating a little bit about the situation with the state of Mississippi and what actually went on, you know, with I think 
people taking it to the convention or doing something. Um, and then after you answer that, my second question is, is that right now, um, I think there's a difference in the, the, the national spirit, for lack of a better term. In the 60s and the 50s, you had a tangible problem. You had something to fight against. You had something that you could see. You saw those signs that said white only and color only. Those signs are now gone. What do we do now to continue the movement, to, to continue the fight? Well, thank you very much uh, for your statement and, and your question. Uh, the Mississippi challenge was simple then. People of color have been kept out of the political process. Even before 1964, there was a, a mock election in Mississippi. Uh, 1963 was the election in Mississippi, the elections was off-year, odd-year election. And you had a black man and a young white man uh, running for governor and lieutenant governor in mock election. And what we were trying to prove, uh, test, uh, demonstrate, I guess, that if black people uh, could uh, participate in the election process, they could determine an outcome of an election. And we had the mock election over a period of seven days. People, we had ballot uh, boxes that people registered, and they have ballot boxes in churches, community centers, barber shops, or beauty shops, or different places. And more than 250,000 people, I believe, participated in those mock elections. And so using that data and information uh, helped to create the Mississippi Summer Project but also led to the creation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, which was an interracial group. The regular Democratic Party in Mississippi was all white, mostly men, very women. And it challenged the seating of the Mississippi delegation at the uh, National Democratic Convention in Atlanta City uh, in 1964. They were not seated. I think they offered them two honorary uh, guests the honorary visitors of uh, guests at the convention. And it led also to the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party challenging the seating of the Mississippi Congressional Delegation uh, in the following January of 1965, I believe. Um, but it helped to build a, a strong challenge to the Democratic Party nationally. And so, the Mississippi challenge kept to make the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, a much more representative party. Uh, today you have a uh, very much an integrated or uh, interracial party in the state of Mississippi, and you have black people elected at almost all levels to the Congress. Uh, I think Mississippi probably have more blacks in the state legislature, I think, probably in the state, uh, all over the state that people elected. Um, so, uh, in a sense, that was a real success because we got the Golden Rights Act passed. And today, you're right, we don't have the signs. People can register and vote. Right now, it's part of our challenge is to see that all votes are counted. That's important. You know, and, and part of the challenge now is to see that, all, that people get out and vote. A lot of people just don't vote anymore. And it's not just African American, no one is voting. The greatest threat to our democracy 
there's a lack of participation. People must get out and vote, participate, run for office, uh, be involved. Um, I, I think it's important. But there's another problem. Uh, education, here in an university, uh, whether it's at the college level, uh, whether it's high school, elementary school, wherever, we need to spend more. Tim Rohn has been a fighter for education, not just for this state and this district, but uh, for our nation. But uh, it's important to see that all of our young people get the best possible education. Uh, we got to protect the environment. Uh, I said earlier, people have a right to know what is in the water they drink, what is in the food we eat, what is in the air we breathe. Uh, there are certain issues I think that transcend race. Uh, they're not just civil rights, they're human rights that we got to deal with. And anytime we see people being discriminated against, have been put down because of their color, their race, their religion, uh, their gender or sexual orientation, uh, whether they're a uh, challenge or whatever, uh, we have to be against it. There's nothing in the room in American society uh, for discrimination. Um, I was hoping you might be able to comment with the events that have happened after the bombing in New York uh, a lot of laws are coming forth at Congress that deal with issues about uh, search warrants and, and how long people can be held, etc., uh, without charges being made. And, uh, and there is a concern by some people that we need to balance you know, the safety and the things we need to do to prevent terrorism with the issues of um, making sure that we don't enact laws that will violate people's rights. And I've been recently reading in the paper how there's been some people who have been held um, as either witnesses or just simply held without charges made for two and three weeks. There was a recently an incident, I believe, about a professor and a doctor that were held uh, for several weeks in a jail. They were not allowed to contact lawyers, etc. And then they were suddenly released and uh, with no charges against them. And it was admitted that there wasn't any reason to assume that they were connected with um, any terrorist pact, other than the fact that they were um, from the Mideast and of, you know, Mideast ancestry. Could you comment on that, please? Well, I'm, I, I think you said it all. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think I can really add anything but say amen to what you said. Um, I'm deeply concerned and troubled uh, in trying to prevent terrorism and root out terrorism in, in, our, in our land uh, that under the guise of doing something about what happened on September 11, we do some bad things that we will have to live with for years and years to come. Uh, I, I think we must not violate the civil liberties, the civil rights, and basic human rights of uh, anyone. Uh, we, we have to be very, very careful. And when these issues come up, I think we have to debate them and we cannot leave it up to one or two people to make the decision. We cannot have the Attorney General and the President uh, of your people in a cabinet meeting making no decision. I think the Congress must participate in, in that debate. And the American people should be able to participate in, in that debate. We don't want to go back to another period in our history. We don't want to go back to the 50s. We don't want to go back where we, uh, 
Japanese citizen. Uh, we don't want to go back to the Makai, the time period. Uh, that would be a step backward. Uh, so I, I know we're going to be very mindful of that. I am. And I know Jim is. Congressman Lewis, um, my name is Mark Meisner. I'm a candidate for Congress here in the 2nd District. Welcome to South Bend. Um, a big part of my platform that I've been campaigning on is election reform. And I've been advocating uh, making Election Day a national holiday so that we make voting easier uh, for working families. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that issue. Well, uh, let me just say that several uh, um, pieces of legislation have ended. There's a bipartisan piece that was introduced by the House Administration Committee, the Chairman, and the Ranking Member. And some of us have signed on to that. I mean, for you, I guess, uh, I think national election, we should find a way to make national election a holiday, a national holiday. Uh, there's some discussion about uh, the possibility of having the same time uh, when we uh, celebrate Veterans Day. Uh, and make that a, it's a national holiday anyway, move national election to Veterans Day. There's some discussion about that. I don't know how you can do it, but there's some discussion. Uh, I think we got to make it very easy and very simple and very convenient for all of our citizens to participate. Uh, same day registration as voting. Uh, we got to get away from this so the punch ballot and all of that. Uh, we don't need to go down that road again. And I know the state of Georgia was moving very fast to get rid of uh, the French card uh, in some of our metropolitan counties. Um, we need to find a very simple way where we won't have a national embarrassment. And at the same time, it's not just being embarrassed, but uh, voting is, is the, it's the thing that we all can do, that we all can participate in. And we must make it an easy task. You've got to get rid of the long line, and uh, just got to make it efficient. And I want to do what I can. Shatim uh, is going to do what I can. So we believe in this, and we feel very strong about it. You got to open up the political process and let all of the people come in. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Lewis, I want to say um, God bless you, and to, to say that. Uh, You've, you've paved the way for a lot of the younger generations around here, uh, not so much blacks, but, but all races to come together and do things. And I want to uh, say thank you for uh, paving the way and being the example for all of us to, to have more freedom than what we've had back in the 50s and 60s. My question to you is I've um, studied Martin Luther King ever since the fourth grade, and I've had a deep passion for the civil rights movement, and I've read a lot of books on him and, and almost everything he's done, and all the different people that you talked about, like Hosea Williams and Andrew Young, Ralph Abernathy, all of my study the civil rights movement basically since fourth grade, I've been a uh, deep, I've had a deep passion for that. And my question to you is, uh, can you describe the feeling of what it felt like to work with King and the different things, like your ideas on what you, all the things that you went through as far as organizing the SNCC, you know, the SCLC, the MIA, and just the civil rights, basically, what, what the, the feeling of the emotions that you had when you went through all that? Well, 
First of all, thank you for your, for your kind words. I'm happy to know that you have been studying the civil rights movement since fourth grade. You probably can tell the story much better than I can. <laughs> that, that is very good. Um, you know, when I was when I was growing up, and sometimes I feel like I never had a childhood. And Tim may uh, know sometimes I act very childish uh, on, on, on the floor. Sometimes I don't know. But maybe I'm trying to regret that. I felt like at one point in my own life that I, I got so caught up in the movement and it became my life. I took everything I did. But during those early years, like you, I read everything, everything I could about uh, the NACP, about April Randolph, about Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Marsh, and others. And when I was in school, and Dr. Marsh, as a lawyer for the NACP Legal Defense Fund, he would come to Nashville and he would speak. Uh, Daisy Banks, for example, who was leading this um, sort of council and organizing the Little Rock Nine in, in Little Rock. And, and people in Coretta would come and sing and raise money for the movement. And I just sort of got so involved in all of that. And today, when I look back on it, um, I feel very blessed, really that uh, I got to know some of these individuals. Got to know more than came to me very, very well. Even like Reverend Abernathy and Jose Wade. Uh, I guess people that you get arrested with, you go to jail with, you, you're beaten with, uh, you see some of your friends hurt, and some of them die, pass on. Uh, it's like family. The movement was like a family. If we used to talk about NSNCC and in SCLC, that we were a circuit of trust, a band of brothers and sisters. And it was wonderful to, to work with Dr. King. He was a wonderful man, but he was not just someone speaking to a large audience or during an interview on television or leading a march, but he was just so, he would listen. And he loved being around young people, but he also would tell jokes on himself and on others. And sometimes it would be so funny, and sometimes not so funny, but you try to laugh. <laughs> he would, uh, on occasion, you'd be traveling someplace in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, there'd be some hole in the wall, to a hole in the wall restaurant. No one in his right mind would want to stop there. You know, maybe some barbecue chicken or ribs or something. And have him in a fast food place to stand in the rural south in a small town. And he would say, let's stop and get something to eat. But we get arrested, go to jail, at least we're going to have a full stomach. So that was taken in here. But from time to time, he would mock deacons at the church and some of the ministers that he heard when he was growing up. And uh, he, would, he would just, uh, sometimes he would say to me, uh, John, that doesn't sound like you. Even when I was working on my Marshall Washington speech, he wanted me to change something. He, he was very kind, he was a very kind and very thoughtful human being. Um, like that's right into the in the movement. I don't know what else I can say about it. Okay. I really don't have a question for you. I just want to state that I feel sorry for what you have gone through and apologize for my ancestors, my grandparents, and aunts, uncles, and um, 
my mom and dad were all alive back at that time when everything was going on. Um, you're the second congressman that has touched me. Um, Mr. Romer was the first one. When he first started into politics, he was um, running for something in Mishwaka. I don't really remember what it was, but he walked up to my house and talked with me the first year that I registered to vote. So I just want to let you know you both have touched me very deeply, and I really feel sorry for what he had to go through, Congressman Lewis.